Thank you for that good singing. Let's take our Bibles tonight and turn to the book of Philippians. Philippians, and we're in chapter 1. Now, we began this great book a week ago, one week ago, and we covered the first 11 verses. If you missed that, if you weren't here and you missed that, you can always go online and you can watch that. Okay? Tonight we're going to be covering verses 12 to 21. Now, it's in keeping with a uh, a very simple outline that we actually borrowed from J. Vernon McGee. And um, he entitled this chapter one as a philosophy for the Christian life. And we'll see that a little more as we get into it. Now, um, the church at Philippi was started by the Apostle Paul, and they knew him and they loved him dearly. And when they heard that he was in a Roman prison, they were sad and sympathetic, and they wrote uh, some sort of letter, and they gave it to their pastor. <clears throat> His name was Epaphroditus, and Epaphroditus made the journey from Philippi over to Rome to visit and to be with Paul and gave him the letter. And in response, I think, to this letter, that's why we have the book of Philippians. Isn't that something? It's amazing what a letter can do. You never know what even a a little sympathetic note or a a short phone call or a little email or a little text will do for someone. And uh, maybe what great thing might come of it. So uh, with that in mind, let's pray once more, and then we'll get into chapter 1 and start verse 12. Now, Heavenly Father, with the book open before us, please have the Holy Spirit to be our teacher tonight. Lord, we thank you that we have such a book, the Bible. Man cannot destroy it. The devil can't get rid of it. Lord, you've said that your word is here to stay. And we thank you so much for it and for its marvelous truths and the promises that are still good today that any believer can rely upon. Lord, we ask that you would enrich our hearts and our faith tonight. Help us to grow in faith because faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God and so Help us, Lord, to grow in our faith tonight and also in our love, our love for you and our love for one another. And bless, we pray, at our prayer time. In Jesus' name we ask, amen. So we pick up now in verse 12, and Paul writes here, but I would ye should understand, brethren, that the things which happened unto me have fallen out rather under the furtherance of the gospel. Look at that once again, that beginning phrase, I would ye should understand, brethren. You know, many of us often just don't understand. We don't understand the things of God, nor do we understand the ways of God. Sometimes God opens doors. Sometimes God closes doors. The Bible tells us the steps of a good man are ordered by the who? By the Lord, and he delighteth in his way. Sometimes the steps of a good man, sometimes the stops of a good man are all ordered by the Lord. Before we get all bent out of shape over something that's not where we think it ought to go, maybe we ought to bend the knee before we get bent out of shape. We ought to bend the knee, and we ought to go to God in prayer and say, Lord, is there anything here you want me to to know or to learn? Show me. Give me wisdom. Help me to understand. And many of us just don't understand the things of God or the ways of God. In the same chapter, if you go back to verse 9 and 10, 
Paul wrote, and this I say, that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment. And we talked about that last week. Here's why, that ye may approve things that are excellent, that ye may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ. So, back in verse 12, he's uh, wanting that they should understand that the things which happened unto me, he says, have fallen out rather unto the furtherance of the gospel. Now, this is uh, the phrase that I've, I've picked up on for these verses, 12 to 21. I sort of lovingly refer to them as the furtherance of the gospel, according to Paul's words here. Now, the furtherance of the gospel, that takes us right back to the words of Jesus. Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. And what do we call that? We call it the Great Commission, right? We've been commissioned. Every believer, every Christian has been tasked. They've been commissioned with the the monumental job, the overwhelming job of taking the gospel all around the world. And right away we say, I can't do it. It's impossible. And God agrees. No, you can't do it. It is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. And that's why when we do it God's ways, we get God's results. Man says one plus one is two. When God gets involved with the math, one plus one could be 2,000. God is the one who can open the windows of heaven and have, have, have us bring forth fruit for him. Some 30-fold, some 60-fold, some 100-fold. We're able to do far beyond. Farmers today, if they can get 20, 25 per, a fold, percent, like a, a fold, not percent, a fold, out of their, their crop, that means uh, for every pound of seed, they'd be getting back 25, 30 pounds of uh, of, of crops. They're ecstatic with that. That's great. And what Jesus said was, he started at the 30-fold, and then went to 60-fold, which is unheard of in farming, and then 100-fold. And man says, that's impossible. You just can't do it. One pound of seed cannot bring forth 100-fold. It's impossible. Yeah, we know that. We've always known that. But someone hasn't told God. Because when God gets involved, then the miracles happen. Now, not the kind of miracles that Benny Hinn talks about. Not those kind of miracles, folks. But good things. You know, where God meets and exceeds needs. Where God does things that all we can do is say, the hand of God is in this. And that's the kind of Christian life that you and I ought to be living if we do it God's way. And I just want to remind you that a good piece of God's way is for you and I to get alone with God every day. One of the reasons why we're not seeing more of the hand of God in our lives is because he's not seeing more of our knees at his throne. We need to spend more time with God. Many of us spend hours watching movies or uh, attending events or maybe reading a newspaper even or something or some online, something on the, on the web, some online thing or program and we'll just spend the very most minimal time in prayer. What a mistake that is, because you reap what you sow. And if we sow 10 seconds worth of prayer, no wonder we're only, you know, reaping one blade of a stalk in harvest, something like that. We need to spend more time with the Lord and uh, with God's word, reading God's word and let God's word speak to you and then spend some time in prayer. There's no finer thing you can do with your time than 
get in front of God Almighty. And God promises you that if you honor him, he'll honor you. That's how it works. Draw nigh to God, God will draw nigh to you. And I'll tell you, God is a whole lot stronger than we are. He's a whole lot smarter than we are. He's a whole lot more able than we are. And what we need to be is just channels for God's blessing through our lives. That's really the bottom line, what we need to be. So if we do things God's way, we're going to get God's results. So he wants the Philippians to understand that these things that happened to him have caused this furtherance, this furtherance of the gospel, the great commission, our father's business. That's what Jesus called it. He said, what? No, wist ye not that I must be about my father's business. And the father's business, of course, is in winning the world to himself. We get into verse 13. So that my bonds, that's his chains, because he was in prison, my bonds in Christ are manifest in all the palace and in all other places. Here's one of the first results of the things that happened to him in verse 12. He wanted them to understand. It's not what you think. It's not as bad as you think. Yes, for man to look at what happened to him, oh, it's a dark day. Oh, those are not good results. But Paul was saying, it's not that. You've got to look past that. I want to suggest to you folks that we need to get into that same habit. When something happens to you uh, and uh, your life just goes splat, you know, or your world turns upside down on you or something, start looking beyond that. You may not see much, but if you, if you stare very carefully, you'll see God. And God is the one who can take splat and really turn it into something. He grows roses from the ashes. He takes the disasters and brings about the miracles. And oftentimes God does that to bless his children. I've seen God do that in my own life. So many times I literally honestly cannot count them. I've forgotten how many times God has done that. When something has happened to me and I said, oh, you know, why did that have to happen? <clears throat> I'll give you mo the most recent example I can think of was this past Monday. <clears throat> I took my car into a mechanic um, and he rotated the tires on the car. We all know what that is, rotating the tires. It's where the tires chase one another around your car. They rotate the tires, right, to get even wear on the tires. I hadn't done it for a few years, so I got it in there. He did this. Then he had, um, I, well, he had one of his younger guys do it. And so... Um, I was very, very pleased with that. Uh, he did it, no charge. And I was very happy about that. And so I drive around, and I'm doing some errands, and I come around the corner of a parking lot, and I hear this little tinkle-dee, tinkle-dee, tink, tink, tink noise. And I look in the rearview mirror, and I said to my wife, boy, I hope that wasn't us. And I couldn't see anything. So we kept on going. We uh, came up to an intersection, crossed the intersection, made another left, Tinkledy, 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 tink. I said, no, that is us. And so we pulled over, and here's what it was. My car is an old clunker, okay? But I love it, you know? Like, I'm an old clunker, my wife still loves me. My old car, I still love the old clunker. And the wheels, you know, the wheels are held on with these lug nuts, right? That's what holds your wheel on. Uh, some smaller wheels have four. Mine, mine's a little bit bigger. They have five, five of these lug nuts. Over top of the lug nuts, there are these little hollow metal caps. And I don't know whoever came up with this idea. It's kind of a, to me, kind of a silly idea. 
But these caps go on and they kind of screw on finger tight. Then you give them a little eh, and that's what holds them on. Well, whoever put them on, just put them on finger tight. And so I lost these things. Try to find them, you know, on a 10,000 year old car. You know, it's not that it's not that easy to find parts. And so um, I went back and there was two of them on the road that had been run over several times. And I picked up these two, you know, flat little pancakes, little things here. <laughs> and I put in my pocket, couldn't find the other one. Gone. Went back to the mechanic. Oh, no, he says, that's too bad. He says, I'll call you. So anyhow, I didn't hear from him Monday, didn't hear from him Tuesday, and I heard from him today. And so what he said was, um, you know, um, I might have found them for you, but they're not cheap. And he said, uh, I got a suggestion that we replace those caps, replace the, the entire lugs with nice, shiny chrome lugs that look like those caps. They're brand new. They'd be shiny. Five times four. They, I need 20 of them. He said, I'll bring in 20 of them. And I was silent. And I said, is this going to cost me anything? He says, no, no, it's not going to cost you. I'm going to pay for it all. He said, in fact, he said, it's cheaper for him to buy those brand new, spanking new, sparkly chrome lug nuts than to find those few caps, three caps or something like that was going to cost him more than to do this. And so he says, this is what I'm going to do for you. And you see what God did? He took something that I, I'm tempted to say, oh, rats, you know, and oh, you know, that young guy who did it and what's wrong with him and so on. And well, now the car doesn't look so good. Well, the car is going to look nice. So if anyone wants to buy the car, it's really going to look nice. No, I don't want to sell it. But you see, that's, that's just one small example. I've had so many times where that kind of thing has happened to me because what I did was I took not just the little caps, but I took the scenario and I took my broken heart and everything and I just gave it to the Lord. Folks, listen. When you give your problems to the Lord, that's what God's waiting for. Paul was in prison and the Philippians, they were so sad and sorry. And he wrote back to them. He says, no, no, it's not what you think. It's not that bad. And he said that it's happened for the furtherance of the gospel. Now, in verse 13, here's the first thing he, he says, is that um, uh, uh, his bonds here in Christ are manifest in all the palace and in all other places. Everyone knew about it. You know, it's good for the world to see God moving in a church. That's good. That's something good, folks. And God is moving. When God does great things... Boy, it's important that the world see that. That's another reason why I'm asking God to give us 20 acres and 10 buildings. I mean, that's tens of millions of dollars. That's way out of our reach. But it's not out of God's reach. And if God does that, I know we can use it. I know we'll be able to use every square foot of it. And that'll give him great glory because the whole city is going to sit up and say, hey, what's happening over there? What an opportunity to witness for the Lord. So we're asking God for great things. It was Hudson Taylor who said, uh, attempt great things for God and expect great things from God. One of our problems is we, we forget that God is great and that he can do so much more and wants to do so much more than, than our tiny little minds will allow.
So let's let God be, be God. Paul here now could witness to the Roman guards themselves, and he ended up speaking with um, uh, the emperor, with Caesar. When, you know, when Paul was saved back in Acts chapter 9, Jesus told him way back then that one day he was going to speak to kings. Well, here you go. Here it is here. We get into verse 14, and we see the second result of the things that happened unto me. And uh, it says, And many of the brethren in the Lord, waxing confident by my bonds, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. And fear is something the devil uses on every born-again Christian. Whether man, woman, older, younger, the devil uses fear. And the devil tells us, keep your mouth shut. Don't tell people you love Jesus. Don't tell them about church or heaven because they'll laugh at you or you're going to ruin things and they'll never get saved. And, uh, you know, they're going to do nasty things. I remember once uh, talking to a man. Uh, I was, I don't know how this, this guy was drunk or half drunk or something. And he was literally crying in his, in his beer. And I was uh, trying to witness to him. And I was a, a very young Christian at the time. And he was really giving me a song and dance. And I'm afraid that I was buying it. And I shouldn't have, you know, in hindsight, in retrospect, he was telling me things that were just outlandish. But um, one of the things he said, because his last name was Patton. If you've ever heard of General Patton from World War II, that famous guy, no, doesn't matter. Yes, no, General Patton, George Patton. They made a movie about him called Patton. And so he said uh, that all the time people think he's related to George Patton. This is back in the 70s, and at, at this guy's age, I would have, I'd put him at least in his 50s at the time. He could have passed for a son of Patton, because Patton died right after the Second World War. Uh, anyhow, um, you know, he was saying, and he was crying as he was saying it, that uh, people always say, uh, let, let Patton pay for it. He's the son of money. Uh, let him pay for it. And then he'd cry and weep right in front of me. And I was a young, very young Christian at the time, and I, I'd never seen this before. I didn't know how to handle it, and I thought, well, I'll just try and minister to the guy. I, I think that he was a slobbering scam artist is what he, I think he was. He was a fooling me anyhow. Anyhow, um, here, the second thing that happened was that Christians were, were bold to speak up. It's fear that holds us back. That's why we don't... Um, tell people about Jesus. We don't uh, invite someone to church. We don't give out a gospel tract because we're scared to. That's half the time. The other, the other half of the time, we just forget. Just totally forgot. Oh, maybe I should have. I could have left the tract. Oh, I could have. I could have. I should have. I, I would have. I forgot. So a lot of it is we forget. But when we remember, then we're scared. The devil uses that. And Paul was saying that this second great result that happened because he got arrested and thrown in a Roman prison is that now the brethren are bold to speak. Christians spoke up. And many of us are afraid to speak for Jesus and the devil keeps us in fear. So what God does is he allows something to happen, something monumental um, in order to help us. I'll give you an example of that. We've had some tragedies happen in the news lately and uh, <clears throat> planes gone down and people have died and other things, you know, shootings and that sort of thing. And that's an opportunity as a Christian for you to, to, to sort of join in the conversation a little bit and say, wow, I'm, I'm going to pray extra for the, the dear families, the survivors. And what you've done is you've, entered, you've, 
you've brought in a spiritual element into the conversation. Now, the unsaved people at work or at school or maybe in the neighborhood or next door, for all I know, they wouldn't quite understand that. And they might think, well, that's a pious thing to do. And then you can follow that up and you can say, I wonder how many of those, those, those dead people are in heaven today. That's not that hard to do. And you might think, oh, well, that's hard to do. Not when God gives you the grace. When the conversation uh, at work or at school is about some tragedy that's happened, and there's a lot of them happening, folks. All over the world, there's a lot of tragedies happen. And uh, that's an opportunity for Christians to speak up. And God will give us the, uh, the, the boldness, the holy boldness, if I can use those words. But even more than this, it seems from verse 14 that not only were Christians getting bolder now, because they say, oh, Apostle Paul, he's the guy that would travel around. He would do all the evangelism and church planting, and now he's in prison. Oh, you got some fellows that said, I'll do it. And so some of the, the uh, Christian brethren were stepping up to bat. And I believe, if I understand this right, they were starting to do now what Paul was doing. They were kind of like going and witnessing and trying to get churches started. And maybe some of them were even going into full-time ministry. All because of this, this thing where he got thrown into a Roman prison. And something else I'll tell you, as that's a good result of him getting thrown in prison it's because that's where he was able to write a number of the New Testament epistles. The book of Philippians, the very one we're studying. We wouldn't have it if he hadn't have been arrested and thrown into prison. Isn't that interesting? And so again, folks, it's because we often don't understand how God works. God will often allow something to happen in our lives that we might think is no good. It's a tragedy. And God has got other purposes in mind. And so if we'll get our eyes onto God when these things happen and ask God for wisdom and understanding, he delights in answering those kind of prayers. So we get here into now verse 15. And um, boy, you know, the skies cloud over here. <clears throat> he says in verse 15, some indeed preach Christ even of envy and strife and some also of goodwill. Envy and strife are not good for anyone. Um, but not everyone who, who speaks behind a pulpit speaks out of goodwill or love. Some of them back then, just like today, are speaking out of envy and strife. And there's a, a, a lot of that that goes on. Uh, envy and strife, I think, will hurt a church faster and deeper than just about anything else you can think of. The Church of Philippi was a good church, but just turn the page to chapter 4. And even in this fantastic church, I want you to see Paul's words in chapter 4, verse 2. I beseech Yodius and I beseech Syntyche that they be of the same mind in the Lord. Now, these were two Christian ladies in the church at Philippi. They love the Lord. They're both saved, but they got into a, an argument. Two ladies in the church, probably two good servants. They were involved in ministries, but even at the church of Philippi, People are people. And they didn't see eye to eye on something. And we're going to deal with that uh, when we get to chapter 4. But, um, you know, we need to be on the lookout for that. When, whenever you have fault finding or petty strife or strained relationships, those are all telltale signs of envy. And we have to be on the lookout for envy. Envy and strife, as I say, will break us down fast. Hey, 
Uh, back uh, hundreds of years ago, Michelangelo and Raphael were two of Europe's finest artists. You've heard the names, I'm sure. And they were working, um, I don't believe that they were Christian men, but they were working uh, at, to um, uh, uh, supposedly do the work of God. They were doing work to beautify the Vatican. And so they were working away, plying their trades, putting in these gorgeous, gorgeous, gorgeous paintings and sculptures and things like that. Two of the greatest uh, artists in all of Europe, Michelangelo and Raphael, supposedly doing this work for the glory of God. And yet, from what I understand, these men hated each other. They, were, they had some kind of bitter animosity toward each other. And when they met each other, they wouldn't even speak to each other right there in the Vatican, but would just sort of turn and ignore the other. And they were supposed to be doing the work of God. Now, you translate that into a, a church where people really do know the Lord. And all of a sudden now, boy, you know, you've, you've got a real head shaker. So how could this happen? In a church where people are saved and they sing the great hymns and praises of God, and yet a few of them in there have this envy and bitterness and, and hatred in their hearts. And, you know, it doesn't take a bomb to start it. Just li some little thing sometimes a little burr under the saddle, you know, something like that, something that festers, and before you know it, uh, anger, you know, being ticked off turns into anger, and then anger turns into bitterness, and then bitterness destroys you, because bitterness is like acid. So uh, what Paul here was saying is that not everyone that preaches Christ is doing it out of goodwill, because they were trying to hurt him. Look at the next two verses, you'll see that, uh, two different ways about preaching about Jesus. Verse 16, the one preached Christ of contention, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my bonds. They were trying to hurt the Apostle Paul. They were preaching about Christ, but they were adding in all this commentary and negative stuff about the Apostle Paul and blaming him and accusing him. This is the Apostle Paul we're talking about. And yet back then, he was just another, another guy, another missionary, another fellow in the ministry. He wasn't revered the way we revere him in hindsight. And at the time, some of his contemporaries, they just thought ill of him and they hated him and spoke very, very evil of him. And so that's verse 16. Verse 17, but the other of love, knowing that I am set for the defense of the gospel. Now, if you look back, please, at verse 7. Even it is meet for me to think this of you because of you all, because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my bonds and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you're all partakers of my grace. So this defense of the gospel was very important with him. And we need to defend the gospel too, folks, because the gospel is always under attack. The devil is always trying to water down the gospel He's always trying to change the gospel. And it's by the gospel that people get to heaven. You know, listen, if, if getting to heaven involved climbing these steps, and what do we got? One, two, three, four, and you're up, okay? And so you start there and you go, one, two, three, four, and you're up. That's how you get there. What the devil's going to try and do is he's going to try and, and tell you that there's not four steps, there's only three. Why complicate things? 
Boy, those, uh, those Baptist preachers, they complicate things and they say that there's, there's four steps. There's not, there's only three. So they, people believe them and they go one, two, three. And that's it. They never do make it to the platform, do they? Because the instruction, the simplicity of it has been changed. That's what some people do with the gospel. And the simplicity of the gospel is we're sinners and we're on our way to a Christless eternity called hell because we're sinners. But pastor, I've never murdered anyone. No, not yet. Praise the Lord. But every bad word, every unkind word, every bad thought, every other creepy thing you've ever done has absolutely categorically denied you access to heaven. It only takes one sin to bar any human being from heaven. And all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So the very simplicity of the gospel is we're sinners and we're bound on our way to hell and we're not there yet because we're still alive in this life. We only have this life. And if we waste this life, if we throw away this opportunity, then when we close our eyes in death, we'll open our eyes in a hell, in a burning hell, separated from God forever. But God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish. That means to end up here in hell, but have everlasting life. That means to end up over here with God in heaven. And some people, they're so crazy, they say, I hate God, I would never want God, I'd rather go to hell. Can you imagine how insane a person would have to be to think that way? Some think, hey, I'm going to go to hell and have a good party with my buddies. You'll never see your buddies. Your buddies will never see you. People will never see one another. Hell is so, so dark and so vast. You'll just hear the screams and cries. You'll hear the shouting and filthy foul language coming out of those lost souls still in hell. But they'll never see the light of day. Hell is eternal. Some people think, well, when I die, that's it. I die like a dog, and that's the end of me. That's what you think. That's what you think. You know, someone once said, hey, there's two of us. I believe in a, in a heaven and a, and a hell and a way to get to heaven, and you believe in nothing because you're an atheist. Okay, well, supposing you're right. Supposing the atheist is right, and when we all die, that's it. We cease to be. Well, I've lived a pretty good life. I've, I've lived a life of joy and love and peace. What has the atheist lived? But what if the atheist is wrong and the Christian is right? Then what? When they both die, where's the Christian? Where's the atheist? If the atheist is right, then when you both die, that's it. If the Christian is right, then when they both die, one's in hell, one's in heaven. So even logic says, err on the side of caution. Even logic says. So how do we know that? How do we know there's a heaven and a hell? Because we have a book from God that tells us. Well, how do we know that's the Bible? Simple. All you got to do is read it. All you got to do is read it. What? Can't be that simple. Yes, it is. I got a jar up here. I'm supposing it was all covered up. And I said, that's a jar of peanut butter. Well, how do we know that's a jar of peanut butter? All you got to do is taste it. All you got to do is taste it, right? That's all you got to do. And, and God says, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Read it. There's been so many people understand and get saved simply by reading the Bible. You see, what cults will do is they'll come along and say, oh, don't read the Bible. Oh, no, 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 no. You want to read our little booklets here. 
You want to watch our little movies. Oh, no, 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 don't read the Bible on your own. You won't, you won't understand it. You need us to tell you what it means. That's not what the Bible says. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man that trusteth in him. Any man or woman who will take the Bible and start reading it will find God. How does that sound? That's good news, isn't it? In a world where we don't know which end is up, what do I do? What's going to happen to me when I die? Take the Bible and read it, and God will find you. And we find here that some people were preaching Christ out of love and sincerity. He was set for the defense, and so ought we. We're not going to run away. Verse 18, we get the bottom line. What then? Notwithstanding every way, whether in pretense or in truth, look at this, Christ is preached, and I therein do rejoice, yea, and will rejoice. Christ is preached. What if some guys are preaching Christ and trying to add affliction to Paul's bonds? So what? The bottom line is Christ is still made known. Jesus is still being talked of. I read the story of... Uh, a Christian man who ended up in a communist prison in Romania many, many years ago. I believe it was in the 40s. Uh, maybe it was the 50s. He ended up in a Romanian, uh, communist Romanian prison cell. And uh, the communists were trying to uh, tell him that he's wrong, that there is no God, there is no Jesus. And at one point, the Christian pointed to a newspaper that was in the, the cell in the interrogation room with him. And so he, he said... Take a look at that paper. And so the, the interrogator looked at it. Well, so what about it? He says, what's the date on there? And I, I forgot what it was in the book that I read, but let's just say 1950. And you, then the Christian said, you see that? That, that, that? that newspaper is attesting that it's been 1,950 years since the birth of Jesus Christ. 1950. A.D., Anno Domini, in the year of our Lord. The world knows, and yet so many deny. But we can rejoice that Christ is preached. And verse 19, he says, For I know that this shall turn to my salvation. Now, when he uses the word salvation here, he's not talking about a spiritual salvation because Paul was already saved. He was talking about a physical salvation. So let's read it again. For I know that this shall turn to my salvation through your prayer and the supply of the spirit of Jesus Christ. So he's talking about getting out of prison and notice he, where he puts prayer. For I know that this shall turn to my salvation through your prayer. Oh, Christians, that's why the devil doesn't want us to get alone with God in the morning because he knows that when we pray, God will answer. You know, the, they say that the devil gets scared when the weakest saint gets on his knees and prays. Is the weakest saint so scary to the devil? No, no. The devil's not afraid of the weakest saint. And I'll tell you, the devil's not afraid of the, strong, the strongest saint either. The devil is afraid of the God of the saint. That's who the devil is afraid of. The devil isn't afraid of you and me. He's afraid of Jesus Christ. He's afraid of God the Father. He's afraid of God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. That's who the devil's afraid of. And when you and I get on our knees and pray, God gets involved in the picture, the devil gets afraid and runs away. Boy, the next time you're feeling anxious or worried or troubled or something, you need to pray and give the thing over to God. God will give you peace and the devil will run out of the room. 
particularly when you start to worship the Lord. The devil can't stand that. He'll leave the room. Wow. The necessity of prayer and the necessity of the Holy Spirit in the affairs of Christians. Before church services on Sunday morning and Sunday evening and Wednesday evening, uh, myself and uh, one or two of the men of the church, we, we get alone in my office. We get on our knees. And I normally always pray that the Holy Spirit would enter and fill our hearts so that we can minister the way God wants us to minister. We have to have the Holy Spirit. Verse 20. According to my earnest expectation and my hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but that with all boldness, as always, so now also, Christ shall be magnified in my body, whether it be by life or by death. And um, this is really why Paul could say that in nothing I shall be ashamed. It's because of his relationship with Christ. Um, you know, some Christians are afraid and they, they're ashamed of Jesus Christ at the work site. They don't want to be known as a Christian. They're ashamed to be seen carrying a Bible, a real honest to goodness Bible into church. And, uh, you know, this, this book right here that I'm holding, fewer and fewer Christians are holding it. Fewer and fewer Christians are bringing a Bible with them to church. Uh, at chapel today, we had a, a guest speaker up here. It <laughs> <coughs> was a, a good preacher. Actually, his name is Mike Johnson. He's been to our church a couple years back. And he was a great preacher. And he was preaching at another church, and he preached them a great message. But in his message, he talked about how so many Christians don't carry a Bible. They carry a phone. They carry their device. And they look up, you know, things there on, on their phone. And uh, isn't it true that it's, it draws less attention when you carry a phone with you compared to when you carry a book like that with you? You walk down the street carrying that. And you're aware that people are looking at it. You walk down the street holding your phone, and no one even sees it. It's almost invisible. But why don't more Christians carry that book? Well, one reason, not the only reason, but one reason is shame. They don't want to be seen carrying a Bible. Don't want to be seen uh, with, with a Bible on their desk at work. And you say, well, I can't do that where I work because they've outlawed it. Well, that's too bad. They've outlawed it in the schools too, haven't they? But if they have not outlawed it where you work, maybe you ought to consider taking a, a small Bible. You don't have to take the great big family Bible, you know, take this thing and smack it down on the desk, but maybe just a small Bible that says Holy Bible on it. Put that, you know, on your shelf or on your desk or something. Boy, that'll make a great testimony. It won't take long for word to spread. Hey, you know, that guy, that lady, she's got a Bible on her desk. Really? Wow, I wonder what that means. And then in the lunchroom, someone's going to ask you, <clears throat> we uh, <clears throat> noticed you have a Bible on your desk. What an opportunity to say, yeah, I love that book. That's an amazing book. I've been reading it for a long time, and I've learned so much. I've learned a lot about God. I've learned about heaven. You know a good thing to uh, say to people? You can say it easily um, to, uh, like, at the, at the checkout, you know, when you talk about maybe the subject, spiritual things come up, and you just ask them, tell me, have you got heaven all figured out yet? Or are you still working on it? And I've used that 
question, that line on a lot of people. And so far, every one of them has told me, well, no, I'm still working on that. You know, it's a nice, easy, folksy way to talk about heaven. And then it's an easy next step, if you can, to say, well, are you interested in knowing more about heaven? Some people just tell you flat out no. Some people tell you flat out yeah. So anyhow, we need to be a little bit bolder here. But he says that in nothing I shall be ashamed. Let's never be ashamed of carrying a Bible or talking about Jesus uh, or going to church or even your own testimony how you got saved. And finally, verse 21, we're finishing on verse 21 here. He summarizes it and he says these words. And I'd like you to read them out loud with me, please. Would you read out verse 21 out loud together with me? For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And I really think that maybe this is at the heart of the whole reason why Paul was not ashamed. Because he's saying, my life for me to live is Christ. You ask a man on the street, what's your purpose for living? He might tell you drugs. You go to another man, what's your purpose for living? He might say money. You go to another man, what's your purpose for living? He might say sex. You go to another man, what's your purpose for living? He says, I just want to get married and, and have kids. Ah, sounds like he wants to have puppies. Listen, I take a stand against the uh, drugs and the alcohol and sex outside of marriage. God invented sex and it's for married couples in the confines of marriage. No problem. But outside of all that, it's wrong. Say, how do you know? God says so. How, does, how do you know that? Read the Bible. You'll find out. The answers are all in there. But all those things, they're not worth living for. They're not worth living for. You see, the guy who takes a drink has got to take another one, doesn't he? And the guy who takes a shot of some drug up his veins, he's got to do it again, doesn't he? And sometimes he's got to up the dose. And the guy who took a drink now has got to take two drinks, Right? And the guy who's played around with, with one girl has now got to play around with another girl until he, he, he then has to play around with another girl after that. There's no ending of any of these things. But Christ is the living waters and he satisfies the soul. And Paul said, he's come to a point in his life where he said, for me, my life is Christ. For me to live, it's all about Christ. It's all about Jesus. Now, the unsaved don't understand that, and we don't expect them to understand that, but it's amazing how many saved struggle with that too. And it goes back to, I think, verse 12 there that, you know, he says, but I would ye should understand, brethren. But he says here, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. I would summarize it like this. I'd say, live brave for Jesus and die brave for Jesus. I suggest that it's good for us to get back to Paul's philosophy of life and living. If we live for Jesus, we won't have to be ashamed before God when we stand before him for any fear or any sin or any selfish uh, ambition. We won't be ashamed. If we live for Jesus, we won't have to be ashamed. Interesting, isn't it? I hope it's more than interesting, and I hope that we can put it into, into effect. So just to summarize, and we're done, like what Paul said in verse 12, we ought to do all we can to further the gospel. That's what these verses seem to, to talk about. 
We can witness for Christ and invite people to church. We can become involved with Soul Winners University, which, by the way, is, is this Saturday. We can all be part of Sacrifice Sunday, which is this coming Sunday. We can all attend Wednesday prayer meetings and pray for lost souls. So those are just some ways for the furtherance of the gospel. Let's pray now.